Welcome back to the Focus on Agriculture podcast. I'm your host, Preston. And I'm Jason. Jason, today's podcast was another neat bee podcast interview. Yeah, we kind of have started a tradition of doing a bee episode every year or so. In fact, our very first episode was about bees. Dr. Jerry Hayes. Yep, yep. So I think this makes number four. Episode 27 was with Jamie Ellis. And then in episodes 52 and 53, we spoke with Tammy Horn Potter about the history of bees in the United States. Yeah, Jason, I think today's interview with Randy was especially interesting because Randy does a lot of research, but he's not really associated with, you know, a university or an industry representative. He's doing a lot of valuable research on his own, and he's a great presenter of that research. Yeah, it, it, he's really a unique person because not only does he do his own research, which, you know, you can probably count on one hand the amount of people that do that successfully on the scale that he does. And then he's also able to share that information. So he travels all over the world sharing some, a lot of this information that we talk about today. Yeah. And I think this is applicable even beyond the world of, of bees, you know, farmers out there who are starting to do more and more of their own research, want to answer questions that they have. They now have that opportunity to do that on their farm in real time. So I think this podcast interview is going to apply to a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely, Preston. So for our listeners, we'll just let you listen to the conversation here and pick up some of Randy's tips from his own words. Without further ado, let's jump right into the conversation with Randy Oliver. Well, welcome to the podcast, Randy. It's good to have you here. To kick things off, could you tell us a little bit about your background, education, and career history? Sure. I, I, I grew up with, uh, my father was a, a high school teacher, and I grew up in uh, Southern California, uh, very much involved in nature. We had a beautiful Newport Bay, which was undeveloped at that time. And I spent my childhood just out there with all the bugs and the plants and everything. Uh, then to... Um, to school, by the time I was in junior high school, I was already, um, well, for junior, junior high school, I was already trying to replicate the experiment where the uh, researcher had found with planaria flatworms that if they trained them to respond to a, um, to a signal and then cut the flatworms in half, which they're able to grow a new tail on the head, a new head on the tail, whether the, uh, the, the halves that grew back could still respond to the same training indicating that the, the learning was not just in the brain. Well, that, that was at junior high school. And, and then, Interesting. yeah, even then by high school, I, I, I just really thrived in, in biology, went to uh, university of California at Irvine, um, working mainly in entomology. And then I was asked by the Dean who later um, <laughs> went on to found uh, 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 Howard Schneiderman uh, in Monsanto, get the biological program going. Hmm. Um, so I worked under him. Um, oh. um, and we had a faculty research facility and it was a new university. He asked, um, when to find somebody to set up an insectary for the, uni for the university starting from scratch. And, uh, so I got that job and ran that for a, a couple of years, which was wonderful. And then, um, took a hiatus from school for a couple of years, moved to the backwoods and then came back. I, I went to Humboldt State University to a master's degree, a applied in entomology, um, but they needed somebody with, uh, in fisheries biology who could work with a crustacean culture. So I uh, got a couple of years of fisheries biology. Hmm. Then went to, uh, after that, um, went to apply for a PhD in apiculture and beekeeping at UC Davis. But they said there were no jobs <laughs> available for anybody with a, a degree. I had a couple of kids, so I had put myself through uh, college <coughs> building houses. So I um, continued as a general contractor um, but then built a beekeeping business um, as I went. 
um, and took a gig teaching science, elementary science, and setting up a science center. And finally, I could uh, uh, give up the contracting uh, once I got into fee hives to make, make a living. And then the Veromite came along, invaded. And the Veromite brought us to our knees, I wiped out virtually all my colonies. And I was very much struggling with it. And I said, you know what? I, I got masters in biology and insect culture and everything like that. Why am I letting a mite kick my butt? So after a long hiatus away from uh, the ac academia, I uh, decided to start self-educating, started hitting the books and um, started researching, um, um, every, you know, reading the literature about Varroa. And um, then was invited to speak to a beekeeping convention in Oregon. My wife and I went up there. And we were absolutely, I had published some articles in the American Bee Journal. And we got invited to speak and I showed up there and we were amazed that the beekeepers were responding to me, uh, a big line of them around me thinking, what in the world is this? And I realized there was a void out there for beekeeping extension uh, people uh, to, to translate the science to beekeepers. And I had stepped into that void and didn't realize it, but it just swallowed me up. I had no intention of direction or anything like that, but found out that um, um, there was a huge demand worldwide by beekeepers um, for somebody who could understand the research and translate it into practical applications for the beekeepers. And that has become my my niche, um, not just in this country, but I get uh, beekeepers throughout the world say, Randy, you are the number one source of information on beekeeping practice, practical application uh, for our country. Um, and, wow. uh, so just really amazing. That is really fascinating. And, and I think it's interesting too, because it, it, you hit on a point there. There's a lot of scientists out there who do a lot of really good work. Uh -huh. And a, a lot of them are really you know, they can share it in a scientific, you know, right. an academic setting, but to bring it to the general masses is right. a real skill. And, and it's not one that a lot of people have. No, you know what I found was when I, um, I taught uh, science, elementary science, and I set up a science center uh, for hands-on science and um, teaching science at the elementary level was very, very good learning experience for me. And what it did, I could apply it directly to, to teach, to teaching science to laymen. There's, there's no difference. I'm not to say that laymen have, are, are like elementary students, but to be able to explain it, to not talk down to anybody, but to not talk over their heads, to, to simply explain it so that somebody who ha doesn't have you know, degrees in, in biology can, can understand that. And because I was making a living as a beekeeper and had that uh, valuable experience teaching elementary science, that was good training uh, inadvertently. I didn't realize, look, you know, in retrospect, you see this, um, but it wasn't a plan. It just happened that way. So yeah. um, that's an interesting lesson too, that maybe, maybe we'll get into a little bit later because we'll probably ask for your advice for students because a lot of our listeners are students, people embarking on their careers. And, you know, your story is very typical. You didn't necessarily have a plan to be no. the, the, the go-to guy for sharing research <laughs> to beekeepers when right. you started out, you know, when you were in college, you had things you were passionate about and, and you did those things, but it, it, it's just, it's always fascinating to me to talk to people, how, how our careers kind of evolve. And I think, I think you have an interesting <laughs> story. You always, the best way is you look backwards from, from where, you, where you wind up and it looks like there was a path, but no, it was, it, what it was, it's just, just <laughs> pure luck 
of which way this path, you, you took this fork, you took that fork or whatever. And uh, my guess is there's very few people that actually the plan actually uh, uh, bears fruition at the end. It's what you wind up doing and look backwards and go, wow, that's amazing how I, how I wound up here. <laughs> if there's people with a plan, and they, and they execute it for 40 years, they're way more disciplined than I am. <laughs> oh, me. Yes, yes, absolutely. Randy, just to throw a random question in here, I think it's cool. You know, first of all, you put yourself out there. I think a lot of people probably do cool stuff, you know, in a non-professional capacity, but a lot of people don't take that risk to put themselves out there. You mentioned the American Bee Journal. Were they pretty receptive when you approached them about some of the stuff you were working on? And, um, well, it was, it was interesting. What first got me going with the American Bee Journal was there was a discussion on a, a chat group about the shortage of bees that occurred in uh, California for almond, almond pollination. And this ha- happened in the winter of 2004, 2005. And it was a biological event. This was just as prior to when, when CCD, calling the collapse order, made the news. But it's already happening at that time. And, and in retrospect, um, it looks like it was mainly the invasive wave of a gut parasite called Nozema serrani, um, coupled with the failure of mitocytes and the evolution of some viruses and a bacterium that all happened at the same time. It was like a perfect storm for the honeybees. And in almond pollination, I had started back in the 80s at uh, $10 a hive for pollination. I remember hitting $18 a hive for pollination, th- thinking I'd died and gone to heaven. The growers kept saying, oh, we can't pay a, p- a penny more for, for pollination. Um, you put us out of business. So uh, we, we worked up a couple dollars a year. So by, the, uh, by 2004, we had worked up to be about $45 a hive to rent a hive for pollination in the almonds. When the supply came up short because there weren't enough live colonies of bees during that winter. The growers started bidding against each other and they bid the offered price up to $155, three, three, over three times the amount. Well, that was at that point, the growers had sh- shown their hand. They could no longer tell the beekeepers, we're not willing to pay more. <laughs> yeah. and, and we never went back. Um, and the price has worked up since that point of time. So I've gone from $10 a colony to the same orchard now to $230 a colony, wow. uh, just in my, in my career. Anyway, at that time, there were uh, discussions about, um, uh, th- we had a California gold rush for beekeepers then who wanted to think, oh, we'll cash in at California, $155 a colony. Wow, was prior hives off the ground, put them on a semi, drive out to California and make a fortune. What they didn't realize is the growers actually wanted to have strong colonies, those hives, strong colonies do the poll- pollination. And there was a, um, a beekeeper who took out some my loads of bees. And when they got graded by the graders, uh, he said, no, these colonies are junk. There's not enough bees in them. And he started really bad-mouthing some of the, uh, the brokers. And one of my uh, commercial beekeeper friends said, Randy, you got to do something about this. You can't let, let them, uh, this guy write in the bee journal, you know, and bad-mouth, you know, uh, our, our pollination brokers here. And I said, well, okay. And I'd never written an article, but I wrote a, a quite lengthy uh, article on um, what's happening in Alma Pollination, what the situation was, and then put it up, uh, submitted it to the editors of the two main bee journals. And they actually got into kind of a bidding war between them because they both liked it. So I decided to go with the American Bee Journal. And, and then uh, after it was a two-part uh, article about almond pollination and about the reality of what was happening there. 
And uh, the um, editor said, well, you got anything else, Randy? And I said, well, you know, I've kind of been thinking about writing about Barilla and stuff. And, and boy, I've missed one issue of American Bee Journal since that fateful day in 2006. Oh, wow. when I, and, <laughs> and, and some of the issues of the American Bee Journal, um, one of them, uh, I remember a few years ago, the, uh, one of the people working there said, oh, the Randy Oliver issue, because they had three articles by me under my name and one article by me under a, a pen name <laughs> all in the same issue awesome. <laughs> so so four articles just by me in the issue of american bee journal and i often have um they can't keep up with me i i i am produce more research um uh results um than uh, i can get in with only one one article per issue so how many articles have you uh, had published now then Maybe I you don't have the exact count. A lot. <laughs> oh, no, I do. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll tell you right now, it's probably about 15 per year since 2006, somewhere in that ballpark. For about 15 years. So well over yeah. 200, it sounds like. Oh, yeah. yeah that's, that's, a, that's significant. Yeah. 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 Well, it's interesting. I just did a, a very interesting research project. Um, it was a consumer uh, um, reports type of testing, which the USDA does not want to do. They don't want to test any brand name products. And, and, uh, because at, and um, the universities also don't because they often get funding from from these uh, uh, the manufacturers and it's kind of touchy with the bee journals because when I, I I do that they're a little iffy too because they're I'm testing their advertisers <laughs> and in this case on one of the pollen subs this was a, to test the different uh, pollen substitutes where we feed as a protein source to our bees during uh, uh, dearths. And, uh, and uh, Daydand, who owns American Bee Journal, there was one of the subs that I tested and, and theirs did not test all that well. So that was kind of <laughs> iffy, um, whether uh, uh, the editor was not quite sure we even delayed a month, whether they were even going to publish my results. Luckily, they, they said, yeah, go ahead. And this was supposed to be like, a, I thought it was going to be a one, a one article uh, uh, results of the performance of these pollen subs. But what happened is I was so surprised by the results. I did a deeper dive into it and went, actually went into realizing that the a beekeeping industry is way behind the other livestock industries uh, as far as artificial diets, that um, our information, uh, all the research we use on the essential amino acids in diets, which every other livestock industry is way up on this. Hmm. The last piece of research was published in 1953. Oh, wow. And wow. we have, had not progressed at all. And so I went into a deep dive of analyzing that 70-page uh, scientific paper out of the Netherlands and realized it had been missing. He had missed the author had misinterpreted some of his findings. Did great research, but had misinterpreted the findings. So I reinterpreted them and wound up publishing 10 articles just from that one trial. Wow. Uh, every one of them of high interest to the beekeepers. So you never know what you're going to get into when you start a, a trial where it will lead to. And I'm not done yet. I'm still good from now. I want to answer some more questions. <laughs> there's uh, always more questions. <laughs> oh, there's always more questions. Always. Yeah. And that's the fascinating thing about this. There's just one thing about with, with the beekeeping, we, we uh, and I've heard this from other old timers, you're going to die with more questions than you start with. <laughs> um, it's, it's not like you suddenly understand it all. The, the deeper you, you learn, the more questions you have. It's just that most people can't even understand your questions because they, you just keep getting deeper and deeper. 
Well, Randy, you referenced that article from 1953 from the Netherlands, and you you mentioned that it was good research, but it was somewhat misinterpreted. Now, uh-huh. Preston and I are, are in agronomic research, and we you know often work with farmers, and farmers a lot of times like to do their own research, maybe test out a fungicide treatment or whatever it might be. You know, they yeah. they'll test products on their own farm. Um, yes. But sometimes there can be some risks with that. And, and you obviously been doing research for a long time. So can you talk just a little bit about how, what makes good research, basically? What, what is important to, you know, what elements okay. are important for that? Okay, speaking, and it's interesting because we started a, um, a uh, funding group years ago um, based on an almond grower and um, a, a commercial beekeeper got this idea because the almond grower said, hey, if I want to do some, uh, find out about something like that and want to see how a fungicide works. Yeah, I'll, I'll go ahead and I'll do a quick, he called it quick and dirty research, you know, where you, you spray one row and you don't spray the next row and you look at the difference. And he goes, we should be doing this for beekeeping research too. And so they start, they started a, a funding group. And unfortunately, over the years, it, I was a scientific advisor for it. It became institutionalized and pretty much became a pass through of funding and it lost completely lost that track of of that value of that of that quick and dirty type of research where the research is instead of directed by the researcher directed by the funder and the funder says here's the question we need an answer to who and let's let's put out some contract research who can actually do a, an experiment um, a good experiment and and answer this question for us so i'm i i'm pretty disappointed about that I was actually asked to resign uh, from the um, from after years of being a scientific advisor because I was very critical of the organization. And, um, uh, <laughs> that doesn't so, always go over well. It doesn't. No, cri- no. <laughs> criticizing bureaucracy does not always go over well. But luckily, I'm independent. Um, I'm funded only by beekeeper uh, donations. I don't take any. Um, um, I do some contract research, but I'm I'm full of this openness on that. So I. Um, one of the reasons I'm respected by the beekeepers is I'm not paid by any institution or um, any um, other entity. That is the beekeepers themselves who um, just send me donations and I use that to do my, my research. So in answer to your question, the number one thing, problem I see with beekeepers who try to do research is they don't properly run a control group. Um, you've got to have, if, if you go out and uh, they'll, they'll have a whole bunch of hives say, well, we're going to test this. So, uh yeah, we applied this product, pro- this product to 2000 hives and man, those hives look great. I said, it, it, but you learned nothing because you didn't run a control group. What about the hives <laughs> that you didn't put it on? Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I see this over and over again. So n- the number one thing is running a control group. The second thing, the piece of advice that I make to, um, to students and to beekeepers who want to do research is always work backwards and you work backwards from your final presentation, when you're standing in front of the audience, you got your PowerPoint up there and you're putting your slides up there. And the graphs that you're going to show and how you're going to interpret those graphs. And I say, draw up paper and pencil, dummy graphs, label the x-axis, label the y-axis, see if you're gonna have a column graph or a line graph or what you're gonna do. Um, um, I'm sorry, first, first you, you define the question you want to ask. That's the main thing. Spend a week, spend two weeks just to find the question into one simple question and write that on the wall. And then every time you're going to do anything in your research, you look at that question. If you come up, say, should I do this? If it isn't directly 
involved with answering that specific question. No, don't bother doing that. Clean it up. But if you need, if you need something, make sure it's in. So now you work backwards from that question. What graphs are you going to put up there to answer that specific question? And then when you put your X and Y axis in there, now that defines your variables that are involved. And then from those variables, then you work backwards and you set up your experimental design, your experimental protocol to work to that point. So always work backwards before you start an experiment um, of what the final result is going to be, how you're going to present it. You basically want to know what answer what you're trying to determine that's how you set up your experiment is how you're going to answer that yeah. question exactly it's specifically to answer that question what data do you need to, to collect so so people get distracted uh, and and the, and i see especially with graduate students and much of the research is done by graduate students and maybe some postdocs who have very little actual experience in beekeeping but they have an idea and they set up an experimental design and they work on it for two years and then they realize, man, did we screw up on the experimental design? But they are still going to publish that. <laughs> and, I, and I often write to the senior author after something is published saying, what in the world uh, about the details? And the senior author will say, well, you know, I kind of had a bad feeling about this, whether we should publish it or not. But God, the poor kids had worked for two years on this project. So we went ahead and published it. And there's a lot of that going on. I get that response frequently. Yeah, they, you can understand that from a graduate student perspective. Absolutely. <laughs> you understand what the, what the professors are doing there, but it's not necessarily adding to the uh, overall body of good science. <laughs> yeah. And, it's, and for example, there was a, um, I just got an uh, email from a professional beekeeper in Germany. And they said, hey, here's an, um, an article came out to the professional beekeepers in Germany from a, an ex-American researcher who now heads a, a, a institute in, in Germany, who said that um, the feeding of pollen substitute is worthless and it's been refuted by this paper. And he says, Randy, how, how about this? And I said, well, that's odd that this, um, this uh, I don't, I'm going to give away who this is. This person used that paper as an example, because on my computer, I have that paper in a, a folder called sloppy science of example of, of what a, how to do a terrible scientific study and uh, I mean, missing that poor design and poor miss poor interpretation and that's that's the paper that that person cited to the beekeepers telling them that uh, feeding pollen sub uh, was of no benefit and um, and that's that's unfortunate because these papers get published and they get once they get published they get cited then they get cited over and over and over again and they may have been junk from the beginning, you know, being their researchers, she knows from Souchelle, where a, a French graduate student published a paper on imidacloprid that was totally erroneous, uh, big mistakes in it. And it's been cited a million times in every scientific paper, look, investigating imidacloprid or the, the neonicotinoids. Uh, so one paper, one poor paper can, can really uh, have huge uh, influence. Uh, and it's unfortunate. We probably don't want to go down this rabbit trail, but uh, that, that, <laughs> yeah, that applies to a lot of things. You know, the news media gets a hold of something that's a little bit oh, sensationalistic yeah. and they say, well, this is a scientific report. And, and all of a sudden this narrative has taken hold and, and it's, it's really inaccurate in a lot of cases. So it's, you know, it, it's an ongoing problem, I think, inside and outside of science. <laughs>
Oh, yeah. So we see this a lot with because I, I, I get a lot of proposals to look at and I read a lot of papers and, and the introductory paragraph of almost every research paper on the honeybee uses the words the decline of the honeybee because they, that justifies you know, their funding and the importance of this research. But there is no decline of the honeybee. <laughs> Anybody who knew what they were talking about would never use that term, decline of the honeybee. The population of honeybees has been increasing, the managed population, for many years. Okay? It's, it's, it's based upon profitability. Now, there's declines of other native species of bees and pollinators, but there's declines of almost all biology on this planet due to climate change. But to have every single introductory paragraph start with the decline of the honeybee that's very bothersome to me yeah i agree well randy let's get into the nitty-gritty of some of your specific research you already mentioned the varroa mite is that the biggest Uh, threat currently facing beekeepers well uh, it depends on how you define a threat Uh, you're talking about is that the biggest problem or is that the biggest threat in the future Mm. A little bit of both, maybe? Yeah, that's a good question. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, it's it's definitely the biggest problem uh, right now. That and uh, diminishing uh, pasture for the bees as we do uh, land conversion. And with climate change, with uh, uh, a lot of the areas that previously were very favorable for bee forage, um, it's difficult for beekeepers to um, uh, find enough forage for honeybees, even to supply the amount of colonies needed for almond pollination. So 70% of all hives, of, of the hives needed for almond pollination have to come from out of California. There's not enough forage in California during the summer to support enough hives just to support the 1.3 million acres of almond trees when they come into bloom. So they have to, they have to come in from out of, of state. And there's less pasture available out there for it. So that is a major one, partially um, well, both largely man-made, uh, one from habitat conversion, uh, taking uh, uh, natural lands out of, um, turning them into farmland uh, with mon- monocropping. But the threat maybe, so that's one, okay? So uh, the two, varroa mite, lack of forage, but then from the business model, competition. And China, uh, there are people in China who have figured out how to take rice syrup and add things to it and uh, or to take uh, un- uncured, unripened uh, nectar uh, from hives and uh, uh, ultra filter it and then add things back to it to make it look like honey and then put it on the market as honey. But they can uh, do it at a fraction of the cost that a beekeeper can actually produce honey. And then they flood the world market with this rice syrup labeled as, as honey. So much of uh, uh, commercial honey used to make like Cheerios or, or any bakery good that says, has honey in it much of that is not honey at all. It's just, you know, relabeled rice syrup. That is a huge problem now and a huge threat also as far as the future, as far as the economic viability of being a beekeeper, you're competing against rice syrup, which is much cheaper than actually producing uh, honey. Well, that's really interesting and probably not something that a lot of people have thought about. They just assume they go to a store, they pick up a jar, it says honey, it's, it's probably honey. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, that's, that's been shown not, not, not to be true. Now, we, yeah, what we see with beekeeping over the years is we humans uh, are terrible about moving a species around from continent to continent, across oceans and across geographical barriers. So um, in 1920, the imports of honeybees into the U.S. was stopped due to fear of a disease, the Isle of white disease. And we didn't have very many new parasites or pests. And by parasites, I'm including viruses and bacteria and fungi uh, introduced in the United States. 
And then everything started to change about 1970s. And we got bam, 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 bam. We got a fungal disease come in. We, we, um, we had a, a parasitic mite come in that wiped out 70% of the hives in California. Um, just brought us to our knees. But luckily, uh, within five years, our bees were able to evolve resistance to that mite. So it's not a problem. Then we got the second parasitic mite coming in. Then we got this, this microsporidian gut pathogen. And then we have some new viruses coming in. Each time during that invasive wave, uh, it just crashes the uh, honeybee uh, business until we, we deal with it, either by learning how to control it or by breeding stock that is resistant to, to that. So those threats are still out there. We don't have the biosecurity that, that Australia has. Australia has managed to avoid getting the varroa mite yet. They all know, they know they're going to get it one of, these, one of these years, but it's been a long time. They're the only major uh, continent that does not have varroa mite brought in by the beekeepers bringing them in. Um, and, and nowadays with, with bioterrorism, if I wanted to, I could infect uh, Australia in, in a week easily. I, I would not be hard for somebody to do that and bring their industry to their, their knees. Or not, not just me, but any, any individual, I should, I'm not saying I, mean, I would do it. Any individual, right. if they really wanted to, it would not be hard to introduce that mite into uh, that country to the point that they would not be able to contain it. So um, that's a scary thing as far as threats is, is um, yeah, bio, bioterrorism. There are uh, some other pathogens out there, uh, parasites that we know of in Asia that would be uh, devastating to us. So if they came in, uh, they could be big problems. So how, I, I'm kind of curious, Randy, I, I don't know this. I, I feel like I should know, but how did Varroa get here in the first place? I mean, I know from another country, but we weren't bringing Somebody, in hives at that time, right? No, but you know what? People who have like, um, they do bee sting therapy and they'll bring a little box of bees, screen box of bees with them when they travel from country to country. And then when they're, when they're done, they go, well, we'll let, release the leftovers. They fly out. Oh. Um, beekeepers, um, <laughs> thing, bee another big therapy. one is, is, is beekeepers move to the U.S., from another country and they were beekeepers in their home country. And they said, we like that old stock. Um, so they'll put a couple of queen bees in an empty fountain pen or something like that uh, and bring them over and introduce them, but they don't screen them for parasites. So that's most likely how it, how it got there. So do you advocate bee sting therapy? Um, I don't advocate anything. I, 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 Good answer. I answer questions with data and I don't advocate. Perfect. <laughs> So let's talk just a little bit about some of your research or what, what, you know, you talked about a few of the things. I know you've done a lot of work with Varroa. You talked uh, about your work on nutrition. Is there anything else interesting that you're working on right now? Those are really the, uh, the big things. What I saw a few years ago, there's a few things we needed. We, need, we needed a, a model, mathematical model on Varroa buildup in colonies that beekeepers could use to plan management strategies. And I spent over a year getting up in the wee hours every morning and plugging away at Excel. I am not a modeler or an Excel guy, but I learned how to learn how to do that and came up with a working model, which is now used world, worldwide. So that was, that was number one goal. Number two goal would be to come up with sustainable um, mite treatments as the synthetic miticides that are uh, largely responsible, used by beekeepers right now for controlling varroa. Uh, the mites evolving resistance to them, plus they tend to cause comb contamination. So uh, we got off that treadmill in 2001, and uh, we run a commercial operation uh, using only uh, organic acids 
and uh, thymol, um, thymol uh, such as in thyme herb, uh, so, um, uh, essential oil. Um, and we are able to run a commercial operation without putting any synthetic miticides into our, our hives. So um, that is the second thing is what's the next uh, uh, natural treatment um, that could be organically approved. Uh, and I'm not an organic beekeeper, but just, just um, for uh, marketing. Um, that could replace that for our industry. So we have a more sustainable and non-contaminating control of the real mites. So I'm very, I'll get back to, I'm very much involved in that research. And then the final solution is to get rid of real mite entirely. And what that is, that's selective breeding. That's breeding for bees that are uh, exhibiting mite resistance on their own. So I've been very much involved in that for five years. And we've gone from a, a fraction of 1% of our colonies exhibiting resistance to the mite that this year we're up to 14%. And in oh. one of our uh, bloodlines, queen bloodlines, they were 50% of the colonies uh, needed no mite treatment at all. So I get goosebumps. I feel them coming on as I say that because uh, I'm very excited <laughs> about uh, uh, this. So um, that's kind of been the three. And then the, the oh, then the, the fourth one is that our industry uh, needed better sources of artificial diet, of protein diets. Um, so that's what this large trial I ran and uh, uh, fin just finished publishing on the, uh, on the pollen substitutes. So it was, we needed a mite model. We needed um, uh, alternative uh, natural treatments. We needed selective breeding and we needed a better protein source. So those have been the four things that I've really focused on these last four years. And I'm really happy that I'm really coming to, have come to fruition in most or, or all of them. They're not done on, on two of them. But I've been very happy when you actually set your goals, specifically what, what you're looking at, and then find those. Here's the deal. Very little of the research being done and published on honeybees has any practical application to beekeepers um, of, of them actually being able to implement uh, findings to make them, their operation easier or more profitable or to solve uh, problems. Um, so those four things are we're all screaming problems for our industry, and that's why I focused on those four things. I'm I'm curious about your breeding work. Are you uh -huh. bringing in genetics from elsewhere? Or are you just selecting from within your own hives? Uh, well, I did what I did what many beekeepers who try this do in the beginning. You think, oh yeah, I'm going to bring in genetics from elsewhere. To it, I get, get some I get some stock from this line that's, that somebody says is resistant, and, and this line, and I'll bring all three of them together. We'll make them out in my yard, and a miracle will happen in my yard. I will be chosen by the deities that this miracle <laughs> is going to be happening here. What happens is that genetics doesn't work that way. If you took a, a Ferrari race car and a Porsche race car and a Ford race car and scramble up all the parts and put them back together again you would get junk. And the same thing happens when you cross a bunch of genetics. Um, you have finely tuned systems where all these uh, genes all work together and regulatory cascades work together. You start mixing them up, <laughs> you get what I call Frankenbees. Um, so that's a mistake that many people make. Yeah, bring in stocks and thinking a miracle is gonna happen. So after wasting some years with that, I said, well, let's go back to what we've done for years. You start with your own stock with a good genetic basis and you start selecting from that stock. And what I'm doing is I'm, I'm walking the walk. I'm, uh, I'm targeting um, for the commercial queen producers who produce most of the genetic stock for uh, bees in the United States saying, okay, if 
if I were to dedicate a thousand of my hives, which is a small number for a commercial uh, queen breeder, to a breeding program, what sort of progress could I expect to make and how much would it cost? And I don't want to involve any kind of fancy scientific equipment or very tedious stuff or huge record keeping or that kind of stuff. So I said, here's the simplest way I can see to do this. Let me walk the walk and I will publish my results every year and my, my failures and everything. I got nothing to sell. I'm just going to show you whether or not you can do it. And I get, um, I'm being followed very, very closely by the commercial beekeepers on this. And many of them have come out to visit me to, to actually uh, see my progress because they, um, and what we've gone from the first year, selecting from my own stock, we had about two tenths of 1% of our colonies exhibited resistance, natural resistance. Um, we bred only from them. And we went up to like uh, 4% up to, up to 6% and uh, two years, 8%. And now uh, this year we're at 14%. So it's not like overnight, but it's, uh, it's clear progress you're, towards this. You're and definitely the beauty, Oh yeah, significant progress. progress. Yeah, Randy, I'm pretty yeah. ignorant of resistance overall. I was wondering, like at a high level, could you describe what that looks like? Like these mites are proportionally are large yeah. in relation to. Is it a behavioral honeybee, change? Yeah. Is it a phenotypic different? What What's the? Okay, well that's that's a very good very good question. Um, and and actually something I was, was going to say is is here's the beauty of this. This is not um, a theoretical. Right now, we have 140 hives I can walk out into that are thriving, strong, beautiful, healthy hives that have not required any mite management whatsoever. They're keeping their mite population down to almost nothing. My, many of the breeding programs make what I feel is a mistake. They, they come up with how the bees are going to do the job, and they select for that behavioral trait. That limits the bees. In nature, what we see, the bees come up with ideas that you would never have thought of. There's a, a, a strain of bees up in uh, Norway that is using molecular biology against the mite. They actually are down-regulating. Uh, the mite is so well adapted to the honeybee that it does not, that it uses some of the honeybee proteins directly in its body without digestion. You, you don't do that. If you ate a meal of salmon, protein day after day, you would not turn into a salmon because you digest the salmon Crazy. protein down to amino acids and then rebuild human amino acids. The bromite doesn't do that. They can take honeybee proteins and use them directly. Wow. So the bees are down-regulating certain genes that, that secrete an ectisone, a, 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 a hormone that allows the mites to put, form their egg, egg coatings. And uh, by doing that, they can suppress reproductive rate of the mites. Now, who would have thought of that one off the top of their head? <laughs> yeah, so my point is, is, is I'm not telling the bees how to do the job. I know, and, and the thing is, the traits normally selected for, uh, uh, recent research is showing, not, that's not the traits that usually the bees actually utilize in their natural um, uh, resistance. And I've studied also the native host, uh, original host of the Vromite, the, Apis, uh, the Asian honeybee, and, and, and seen, figured out just how they fight the mite. And they have a very, very good way of, of doing that. They have a very stable host-parasite relationship that, that works for them. So <clears throat> what I'm doing is I'm letting the bees figure it out. And I'm just, I, I'm saying, I'm not telling them how to do it. I just define the job description. 
And at the end of each year, the 90, 97% that fail with a job description, they don't get bread from. <laughs> okay. So um, clearly I have not, even in my, in mine, I have not focused on trying to figure out how they're doing it, but I can tell you, that after a year, you just look in there, it's like beekeeping in the good old days before we had the varroa mite. And, and for your audience, it's not the mite that's the problem. The mite is a vector for viruses, especially one particular virus. And that, uh, that one virus, deformed wing virus, is what tends to take our colonies down. If you can just keep the mite level very low, it's like controlling malaria by keeping the mosquito population low. So what we do is by keeping the varroa population low, the viruses are not an issue for the, the bees. And we have colonies uh, that just uh, keep varroa. They, 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 somehow they're, they're keeping varroa from reproducing uh, to an adequate extent uh, to increase their population. So um, uh, and that's, that's, uh, once I get this stock established, then researchers can, can, can get it from me and they can tell me how they do it. <laughs> but that's not my, I don't need to know how they do it. Um, and, and this is how selective breeding for most of our plant and animal uh, varieties up until recently, they were developed before anybody heard the, the word genetics. It hadn't even been invented. Uh, you just breed from the stock that has the traits that you, that you like. And the trait I'm looking for is um, not seeing how they do it, but just that there are, uh, when I uh, take samples of bees to see whether or not there are uh, the, the, the uh, infestation rate of the mites, that it stays at zero. As long as that infestation rate stays at zero, then I'm happy with however they're doing it. That's a great point because people did plant breeding and animal breeding for thousands of years and oh, yeah. had no, no idea what they were doing. They just kept what they liked and, and mm -hmm. saved that for the next year. Exactly. And, and I, and I, I there's no reason and I'm, I'm very familiar with, I've, I've worked with two Israeli startups on RNAi. Um, one of them actually sold to, um, to Monsanto. And um, so I've got plenty of experience working with top-notch scientists from around the world. I got two labs I set up at home working with these startups um, doing that. So I know about high-tech breeding, and, 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 but that's not what the queen producers are interested in. They're not scientists. So um, I didn't want to take that path. I want to go back to old school breeding, which has been used forever, which they can understand and see um, if we can do it by doing it that way. Well, Randy, I'm still fascinated by your model of doing your own research. And, and what advice do you have for other people that might be interested in doing some of their own research? And we've covered some of this. We've covered some of the elements of good research, but, right. you know, and, and how to start with the question and then, you know, the answer and work work backwards but yeah do you I'll have you any what, other advice yeah on my on my website scientificbeekeeping.com if you look on there under research um there's i have a pdf doc on tips for doing bee research now i'm going to i've just recently um expanded that and made a powerpoint about that it's not available yet i hope to record that soon and i'll link that to my website and it greatly expands upon that and that would be um um it's about an hour long presentation, but it takes you from beginning to end and shows a whole bunch of examples, lots of photographs of research I've done and different kinds of research, whether you're just doing exploratory research or a confirmatory research or, um, or testing, uh, comparative testing uh, of that. And then and also how to graph it out. So, um, oh, sometime in the next couple of months, I'll probably have a uh, link, a whole PowerPoint uh, explaining that uh, to the PDF doc that's already at my uh, website. Awesome. Well, we'll be sure to link that in the show notes. 
Uh, Randy, we really appreciate your time here. One question we typically end with is what excites you most about the future of beekeeping? Are you optimistic? I, uh, unfortunately, not that optimistic about this planet. <laughs> okay. Or about anything living on this planet. And here in California, we are seeing climate change uh, really come to the fore. It's just uh, this last year has been a disaster of, much, of, of weather uh, type events and things just so different. There's no more normal in California. I mean, for, for many years, we could predict uh, had a pretty good idea of what was, you know, the seasons were going to be like when there's going to be raining or storming or dry or where we could take what plants would be blooming where. We have no idea anymore. Uh, mm. Areas where uh, generations of beekeepers could count on a certain plant blooming at a certain time and you move all your hives there and you make a honey crop there. That doesn't happen anymore. It's uh, those plants, many areas that you can't even find those plants. They no longer even grow there. Our climate is changing so fast. The whole, whole landscape is changing. So as far as the future, you know, I'm normally an optimist, but that's, that's tough. That's pessimistic. Um, but I got my two sons are, they're running the operation now, the operation. And, and the thing is when in business, when things are really difficult for a business, that's the chance when those who are really on top of it can make money. That's, so that's opportunity there. So for them, because they, uh, they grew up <laughs> doing research with me, they're probably two of the best research technicians for, for uh, uh, beekeeping anywhere. They have a leg up on the competition. And again, this, my whole th premise here, scientific beekeeping, scientific does not mean test tubes or lab coats. It means they use a scientific process of understanding uh, why things actually works. You don't just do something because somebody told you to. You, you do it because it's actually supported by, by data and by experiments. And so we, we challenge all of the books and find out that or the beekeeping books are completely full of errors that have been parroted, advice that's been parroted generation after generation, which was never based upon sound research at all. Um, and, and, and still new stuff coming up that way. It's very frustrating to me. So, so um, uh, that's the, I guess if you want to say what I can be optimistic about, that my sons will probably survive their beekeeping operation uh, because they, they, they do run a, a scientifically-based research. So it's just, you guys know with agriculture, with most of agriculture, boy, you know, farmers, they need to stay up on, on the science to be competitive. The bee industry needs to get there also. At some point when you, when you decide that it's time for you to retire, will your boys continue to uh, do the scientific research and, and share that information? Will they kind of continue they, your legacy? I kind of doubt it. Okay. <laughs> uh, that's just, it's just not their thing. They're very, they're very good as uh, technicians and they understand the science, but they don't seem to quite have that motivation of um, um, my, my father was a well-beloved high school teacher. And some of us just are born that what we like to do is we like to share. And there are some humans that just what their motivation yeah. is, is to share information. And so that's me. It's not so much my, my sons, they have other, you know, wonderful traits, but, yep. but sharing information is not, not their main motivator. And we, we kind of referenced that at the beginning, how some people, it's just, some people love to share information and, and teach other people and some people just don't. And that's <laughs> not right yeah. or wrong. It's just different. Yeah. It's just different. And that's what makes up humanity is, is uh, there's different, different traits for different people. Absolutely. So Randy, thank you very much for your time here. You mentioned your website, scientificbeekeeping.com, and we'll definitely mm -hmm. link to that. 
I think you have some YouTube videos out there that are probably linked from your website also. Is there any yeah, other very, way? Very few. I need, I need to, I, I, if you Google search, there's thousands of videos of me speaking, but none that I've recorded or linked to my website. Okay. I, I don't commercialize anything at all. So, um, but I, do, I need to do that. I need to start, start posting some of those to my website. So is that the best way outside of your website to just Google you and pick up some of your presentations that way? Yeah, pretty much. If you Google any question on beekeeping, something from me will come up uh, on the first page. Usually a few things by me will come up on the first page of anything you Google on beekeeping. So it's not hard to find, find me. I guess I've never done it. I guess if you Google Randy Oliver video, I, my guess is you're going to get a, a ton of <laughs> hits. I've, I've never thought to try that. Sounds great. So yeah, okay. we definitely appreciate your time. Thank you for being so generous with it. The listeners are Hopefully they've enjoyed this conversation. All right. Thank you, everybody. Thanks, Randy. Take care. All right. Okay, bye. The views expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the program hosts or their employer.